ಸಿದ್ಧಾಂತೋತ್ಪಲಸಾರಿಕ್ಯಸುಧಾಮಸೇವಕಂಬಿಶ್ರಂಭಕ್ತಿಪ್ರದಿಚಕ್ಷಣ
it's the consciousness we do it in. So in Nishkam Karma Yoga, one is doing one's duty, whatever it is one does normally to maintain one's body and one's family if they have one or whatever. Um, but, and, and then normally people in, in, the, in the conditioned state, they just act and they are trying to uh, enjoy the fruits of their actions. They're, they're acting in such a way, or they're acting with a, with a mentality that they are the center and they are the enjoyer. That everything they do is just for them, whether it's for them directly or whether it's for them in an extended form in terms of people and things that they identify with. So that's ordinary karma. So then karma yoga, <clears throat> excuse me, is. Karma yoga is the, what, what makes action a yoga is moving one's consciousness in the direction of divinity. And at this point, Krishna is not overtly advocating for bhakti at all. He's, he's speaking about Nishkam karma yoga in terms of its being a progressive stage of the soul's development from utter ignorance to ultimately to bhakti, which is Krishna's ultimate advocacy of the Gita. But here in the third chapter, he's not bringing that out at all. So uh, Nishkam Karma Yoga is not bhakti. Um, it, it may have some devotional elements to it, but it is not bhakti. And the reason it's not bhakti is that, like I said, you're, you're basically doing what you would normally do, but you're doing it without a view to enjoy the fruits. Whereas bhakti is, the mentality is, we do what is favorable for bhakti and we reject that was that which is unfavorable with a view to please bhagavan so it's all about krishna's pleasure or bhagavan's pleasure in bhakti whereas in karma yoga you're doing what you have to do anyway you want to do it one way or the other just to be able to maintain your body but you're, you're distancing yourself from the fruits of it and trying to do it in, in a selfless way. So it's a huge, uh, Nishkam Karma is a huge, huge step up, huge, prog uh, uh, huge uh, measure of progress from just regular karma. But it's still a long way from bhakti. And so, in the beginning of the opening, the, the chapter opens by Arjun wondering, well, you wanted me to become this, develop this equanimity of mind, and you've told me that knowledge is better than action, fruitive action, so why are you engaging me in this war, this horrible action? Kind of why are you engaging me in this action because any action is undertaken presumably for some result so krishna has a result that he wants to wants to bring about by this but but what's the point arjun's wondering well what's the point so Krishna says there are two kinds of two paths. See, at this, at this point, again, he's not developing. The theology isn't there yet. And he's, he's still, he's gradually, gradually making his case for bhakti. And in the beginning here, it's, he, he's not letting much out about that. He's, he says that there are two ways of, that the, uh, 
embodied souls can attain perfection. For the jnanis, it's through knowledge. And for the yogis, for the karma yogis, it's through action. And of the two, of course, action is better for beginners. And the reason for that, of course, is that by working with the body, it's much easier to, you get immediate feedback and it's, it's visible feedback. It's more easy to see what, what, is, what is happening with the body. Whereas the mind can be all over the place and yet the person can be just sitting. And Krishna actually does address this in the, in the, the opening section here of this chapter. Um, but before we get to that, so the, the idea, uh, just the nature of action is such, Krishna points out in the ninth verse, that all action in this world is binding unless it is performed as sacrifice. And Satyanarayan Das Babaji translates this verse as, all endeavors other than those that are performed as an offering to Vishnu are the source of bondage in this world. So he brings out the, the theological implication of the verse, whereas uh, Guru Maharaj's translation is, he doesn't mention Vishnu directly in the translation. But in either case, um, ultimately what the, the, uh, the purifying agent within any action is doing it as an act of sacrifice. And then in that section, of course, Krishna goes on to lay out how in this world, through sacrifice, we satisfy the demigods, the demigods satisfy us by thereby providing our, the material necessities it takes for us to live. But before, we, before Krishna gets there, he, he talks about uh, the nature of action and that it's uh, that we can, he, well, he does mention that uh, no matter what, one can, one, one is, we, we can't stop acting. The, the soul, as I pointed out in my first lecture, the soul is by nature is active. So in other words, consciousness is always, uh, even in sleep, there is consciousness there. Consciousness is always active. It's always, uh, it's always on, so to speak. <laughs> uh, even in a deep sleep, one, one could say that you know, there are, and for ordinary people, of course, deep sleep is a state of unconsciousness. But the soul, it's not like the soul itself shuts off when we go to sleep. It's just that the soul is uh, covered by the mind, so to speak, or covered by the gunas, Thomas in particular, in that case. So then if, the question may come, if all action binds the soul to the world, the source of, source of bondage, <clears throat> what is what is that glue? What is that thing that binds a soul? How is a soul, an incorporeal, uh, an immaterial being bound to matter, the body? How is that possible? That's kind of one of those mysterious things like how does the mind influence the body and how does the body influence the mind? And the answer, of course, is through, it's not through some physical mechanism because that wouldn't make any sense. I mean, the soul is not physical, so it's, it transcends matter. It doesn't exist within matter, and so matter can't bind the soul. It is the soul's identification with the gunas that binds it. So then Nishkam Karma Yoga is about gradually, gradually disidentifying with matter. So even though the Vyatma is not the, not the focus in Nishkam Karma, uh, one's actions are, but one, by doing one's actions without, with a view to having renounced, I should say, 
the desire to enjoy those actions and enjoy the fruit of those actions, then that requires some detachment. And it is this detachment that over time allows us to see through matter as it were, the soul starts to actually come out. And that is the, that is the fruit of Nishkarm Karma Yoga's knowledge. So knowledge being, of course, not just worldly knowledge, knowledge in this sense means realization of the Atma, realization that I am, I am, I am not the body, I am not the gunas, I am not anything of this world, I am, I am a jiva, I am an Atma, that's, that's the fruit of Nishkam Karma Yoga, the actual, the actual fruit of it. Uh, but, uh, Guru Maharaj mentions, as Krishna will gradually reveal in this chapter, while knowledge is the goal of the path of action, it must be attained through the path of action and not prematurely adopted through an intellectual sleight of hand. The solution to Arjun's dilemma lies in understanding the secret of inaction within action, that is the heart of karma yoga, and ultimately in treading the path of devotion. So, This gets to the nature of renunciation and uh, true renunciation versus pseudo-renunciation. So Krishna mentions that you can't just sit down. If you just sit down and um, adopt the external appearance of a renunciate, and yet the mind is still contemplating the object of the senses, then you're a pretender or a hypocrite. And so for one whose heart is not purified, the likelihood that that would happen is far, far greater than the likelihood that one would be able to actually sit and contemplate the nature of being with a peaceful mind. Because the mind is, the nature of the mind, the material mind acquired over countless births, is directed outward to the objects of the senses. And so to just decide one day that I'm going to turn inward, that's a good decision to make, but as we'll uh, later on in the series, as we'll hear, habit does not work like that. There is a thing called this, called the force of habit or the habits have an inertia in a particular direction and Anybody who's ever decided that they want to lose weight knows what I'm talking about. <laughs> that, or they, they want to make a new year's resolution to start going to the gym. And then when it actually, the day shows up that, that it's time to go to the gym, well, they've got other things to do, or there's this so much internal resistance, and mental resistance, and bodily resistance. Uh, I can't get out of bed or, the mind says no or whatever. Cake is more attractive than sweating in the gym. <laughs> so that's the nature of habit. habit. Habits exist for a reason. They exist to maintain homeostasis, uh, uh, a state of balance within the body, within the mental and physical system. But habits, as we know, can be both negative and positive, and some negative habits work against us, work against our, our, our better interests, our, our interests of what we know is better, what, what, is, what is good for us, and, and positive habits, of course, work for us. But in any case, in, in either case, good or bad, habits have inertia, and so to just that's, this is why willpower is, has been proven to be ineffective in changing habits because will is not, not enough. Our willpower runs out long before the inertia of the habit is overcome. But that, that's for later in the series. So the nature of Nishkam Karma, though, or nature of uh, 
pronunciation, I should say, as we were discussing is detachment comes about through action. And so over the years, I've given this a fair bit of thought, like, how does this work? Like, how does, how does action bring about knowledge of the soul and detachment? And in other words, uh, how does action train the mind, as is the uh, title of this series, Training the Mind Through Action. So how does that work? It's a combination of things. It's a combination, I think, of um, tolerance and detachment, and, and of course, and practice, so repeated exposure. Um, so dutiful, detached action trains the mind through tolerance in the sense that anybody who's ever had a job knows what I'm talking about which is you have to do things that you don't want to do when you don't want to do them. Your body has to be at work at a certain time every day, whether you want to or not. More often, you, you would prefer not. <laughs> and yet your body has to be there. And so the body, uh, by, by, by getting up and going and doing that, forcing oneself to be there in those circumstances because that's required for making a living gradually over time the mind starts to fall in line so we start with the body um, same thing in like uh, patanjali's uh, ashtanga yoga there, there's a reason that asana after yama and niyama the next one after in other words after one has a uh, a moral foundation for for pursuing the path of yoga they're a decent uh, and essentially a decent person to to really start to ascend the ladder of yoga in patanjali's yoga you start with the body with asana then pranayama the more subtle aspects of working with the, the mental energetic system and only then after some some skill and uh, steadiness of mind has been brought about through asana and pranayama does one is one actually able to really abstract the mind withdraw the mind in pratyahar from withdrawing the mind from the sense objects and then be, that is the beginnings of the contemplative life pratyahar and then actual dharana concentration so if one's one, if one looked at the, uh, the path of yoga and um, they, they, they see that, well, okay, so samadhi is how we actually purify the mind and heart. So I'll just practice samadhi. Good luck. It's not so easy. Samadhi is something that samadhi is is something that is attained with only through having a, a steady mind. And so a steady mind is attained by first studying the body. So that's the idea of asana. Asana is is defined in, by Patanjali as sukham and stiram. Sukham meaning meaning it's pleasant. It's not you're not pushing to the point of pain. Some challenge may be there, but not pain. And stiram, it's steady. So steadiness, steadiness of the body leads to steadiness of the mind. And, and this is also uh, can be uh, reflected in the um, in dhyan meditation itself. Like in the Vedanta Sutra, meditation is said to only properly be possible in seated positions. And in the sixth chapter of the Gita, Krishna lays out the whole process of how to sit properly. So when the, the trunk and the neck and the head are in a straight line, one sits on a seat that is on a kusha grass mat with a deer skin and the cloth and not too high, not too low. He gives all these, all these uh, 
parameters for sitting properly. And then the idea is you sit and you sit still and you turn within so that by taking the body out of the equation, one can focus the mind. But this presupposes that one has the ability to actually sit still. And so when I uh, was practicing and I, took an, and I took the teacher's training in the early 90s with Shivananda, they said there's two kinds of asanas. There are cultural asanas and there are actual meditation asanas. And the meditation asanas are just a few, siddhasana, padmasana, like that. And then the cultural asanas are there and are practiced for one reason, one reason only, and that is to give the body, to train the body to be able to sit for extended periods of time so that you can meditate. That's the classical view of it. And, I, and it's, not, it's not to make the body pretty or you know, attractive to the opposite sex or any of that. It's to be able to sit and meditate. That's what asana is for. So now in the context of, of bhakti, Well, let's say, uh, so we're training, training the mind through going to a job is one thing. How about um, another example might be in the, in, the, um, in the bhakti, in our tradition, let's say you join the ashram. So you're, you're, duty, you're doing your duty. Rise early and bathe um, and do the sadhana or service that is prescribed by the guru. So for most of us, uh, this is not pleasant. Uh, getting up at four o'clock in the morning, seven days a week is, for most people, until you're habituated to it, it's just extremely difficult. And um, there is going to be some resistance to that, at the very least mentally. So your body may be getting up in the morning and going to Mangalarati or whatnot, and may be there, but the mind may be going, oh, I'd much rather be in bed right now, but you're there anyway. And eventually, gradually, as you do that daily, day in and day out, the mind starts to come around and the uh, qualities of tamas are overcome gradually and some sattva, ingress of sattva is there and you actually start to like it. You start to uh, get some, start to understand the point of why I'm doing this. So getting up in the morning is doing something for me, but it's that, that tolerance, uh, tolerating, first tolerating uh, being there, doing something that you don't want to be doing at a time you don't want to be doing it. That leads to some detachment. So you're, you're, in other words, the mind may be going on about how it doesn't want to be doing what the body is engaged in, and yet you're doing it anyway. And so some detachment has to be there. You start to detach oneself from the from the dictates of the mind and the senses the senses the sense of the sense of um feeling i guess would be just wants you to remain on the pillow and yet no that's not what we're doing here we're doing sadhana so you get up and you drag yourself out of bed and you go and so these these uh patterns of habit which are um, basically governing our lives are, are gradually changed. They're replaced with a different pattern. And uh, people who have been in the ashram for a long time may notice that even once they leave the ashram, that even if they were never a morning person to begin with, before they joined the ashram, after being there for a while and having done that program, if they leave the ashram, they still get up early just because that's what they're used to. So habits have power. And that is the, uh, one, of the, one of the overarching messages that I want to um, bring out and, and uh, work with, uh, explore in this series is just habits, the power of habit. Everybody knows the power of habit. Most often, more often than not, the power of negative habits. But um, we're going to go into positive habits too. And that's what sadhana, sadhana is. A series or a, 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 a cluster of positive habits. So 
renunciation. Renunciation is then uh, Krishna says, you know, you can't just just sitting down and acting like renunciate is not actual renunciation. Renunciation uh, or the ability to sit and be contemplative comes about through action. And that is so true renunciation is actually doing whatever you need to do, whether it's inconvenient for your body or not, but, but doing it with detachment. So presumably there, if Krishna is mentioning it, there obviously were people who would get the theory They'd understand that, oh, you know, uh, dutiful action, doing my duty, that, that's problematic. There's so much work involved in that. And so I want to, I'm not, I'm not a, I'm not a, I'm not my body anyway. So why bother? I'm not going to do that. I just become a, a renunciate and I'll sit down on this mat and I will practice yoga. Um, but as we know, more often than not, that doesn't actually work. But what ends up usually happening is that the person will end up contemplating the things that are, the, the desires that cause people to move in the world have not been removed from the heart. And so just sitting down doesn't rid oneself of those desires and those desires will still force the mind to act in those habitual grooves regardless. And so, one will then be a hypocrite because you might have adopted uh, the garb of a sannyasi or whatever and be sitting on the cushion and, and meditating when in fact you're just contemplating the things that you used to be involved in. And so Krishna condemns this as this is not good. Um, and, and this is just in a broad, broad spiritual uh, practitioner, uh, the, the broad, broad spirituality in the broadest brush, painted with the broadest brush. Whereas in bhakti in particular, uh, we've all heard many, many times, I'm sure, of the, the reality that we can't just sit and chant, pick up a japa mala and sit all day and night like Haridas Thakur and chant japa. Therefore, beginners are never, uh, at least in our tradition, in the in the Bhakti Vinod Parivar and Sarasvat Sampradaya in particular, beginners are never encouraged to just sit and chant on their beads, because the the practical observation has been that that does not work. <laughs> that people who try to do that generally end up not doing it for very long, and then they generally end up, if not uh, falling away from the path of bhakti altogether, they fall away from that pseudo renounced position and end up absorbed in all sorts of um, sensuality, often is the case. And so, rather than emphasizing japa or nirjan bhajan, uh, sitting alone and chanting, um, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu has recommended. Kirtan. And so why is that? Well, it should be pretty obvious that Kirtan engages the body more than Japa. In Kirtan, you've got to, first of all, you, you're, you've got the, uh, the social pressure, as it were, or the, the, social, the social dynamic where you actually enter a room with other people at the same time so you've got to be there and if you're not there then people might look around and wonder where you're at so there's that it engages your body just by being there and it's there's so many elements to it if there's the the musical elements of the melody and the rhythm and so that takes a certain amount of uh, attention and intelligence to be able to focus on those things and then 
uh, if you're standing up, they could be dancing as well. So like the body and the intellect are engaged much more fully. Whereas in Japa, the idea is that you, the body is, is your consciousness has been cultivated to such a degree that you can live within, live within uh, the realm of consciousness itself and forget about the body. That's actual bhajan is when you can forget about the body and go within and focus on doing lila seva through chanting the name. And so it should be fairly obvious that not just anybody, not, not a beginning sadhikas, they have no business um, attempting to do that. And so they are recommended do kirtan, do kirtan, do kirtan, do things like archan. And of course, over time, we'll start to realize that these physical practices have non-physical um, aspects to them. Like, for example, uh, if you're doing puja to a deity, uh, one of the mm, an important aspect of of the of doing the puja is to first offer the articles within the mind. And it's said that for sadhikas, then the, if one doesn't do that, then the actual offering the articles externally is, they will, will not bear fruit. So that's just a way of saying that the mind has to be engaged as well as the body, but the body, you know, you're going first, you're going collecting all these articles and the articles have to be of a certain type and the paraphernalia has to be clean and polished and whatnot. And, following all these rules it's very engaging it's very absorbing that is the point so the body is by forcing the body to go through the these these motions you start to actually rein the mind in and focus it on krishna and then gradually bring it in the direction of going within into into the leela ultimately so that of course is that's the very very high end of training the mind through action um, it's far, far beyond uh, karma yoga, but the principles, of course, uh, of karma yoga are still, <clears throat> excuse me, they're still the same. They still apply within the realm of bhakti. So then one could say that just as, just as uh, knowledge, atmakyan, knowledge is the fruit of nishkam karma. In other words, the ability to contemplate the nature of the atma is the fruit of having acted in a detached and selfless manner in bhakti by doing kirtan the fruit of that is contemplative life the ability to sit and chant so there's a parallel there and of course the ability to sit and chant means that The principal anarthas have been cleared from the heart. So we're talking about the stage of nishta. It's nishta and even more so ruchi is when one can actually sit with a peaceful mind, focused mind, a steady mind. Nishta means steadiness. So steady nishta in the full sense of the word means steadiness, steady mind, not just, you know, you get up every day and do the temple program. That's great but that isn't necessarily the stage of nishta. That's, um, that's the actual stage of nishta. This means that the mind has been, um, the chitta has been purified of, of the, the, major, the major aspects of worldliness that infest the heart of most uh, conditioned souls. And then one can actually sit, even though, Nishta is described as if you have a box that had camphor in it and you take all the camphor out, there's still some scent. So Nishta, there's, of course, there's still material desire there, but they're, they're subtle and they're subtle enough that they, that they do not stand in the way of one's practice. And so at that stage, one can sit and, and chant peacefully and, 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 um, 
um, the more subtle practice like that will actually bear fruit. Whereas prior to that, if one has all sorts of desires that are drawing the mind outward all the time, um, chanting will be less efficacious because for the simple fact that it's, you, you can't pay attention to the name. Whereas in Kirtan, oh, it's a beautiful melody. It's so, so attractive, so beautiful. It just makes you want to chant forever. And that's great. That means you're paying attention. And then, but usually what happens in Kirtan even is that even though it is so absorbing, still it's not like you're chanting the same melody for you know hours and hours and hours. Usually what happens is you chant for a while and then the mind starts to get bored of that and you stop. And and then chant a different melody for a while. And that uh, there is a, um, in this modern psychology, Western psychology, there is a recognition of the, of a, the effect of novelty on, on, um, on, on, on learning and on um, training the body and different aspects. So the novelty is how the mind, how the brain has evolved to to work it thrives on novelty and so a certain degree of novelty within an overall structure of sameness is very very effective and what i mean by that is say if you've got a program of sadhana where you know you do the same things every day you do chapa you do kirtan you do archan you do puja you do um, seva but there's enough variety, enough novelty, as it were, within those things to keep the mind occupied. Or let's say you're, let's say you're doing kirtan for a while, and then then uh, you, you do kirtan for a bit, and then oh, the mind starts to tell you, well, okay, that's enough of that, and then okay, move on to say reading. And then your mind starts to lose focus, and then you move on to something else and then something else. So that's a, a very effective way to bring about uh, steadiness because you're, you're continually engaged in bhakti, even, but it's in just in different forms. And so there's enough novelty, but not so much that it's just all over the place. So there's a it needs to be a balance between novelty too much novelty where it's just absolute chaos and you don't know what to expect. And then too much routine where it's just boring, a good balance between the two. And that is a, an excellent method of training the mind. And we find that it, that, 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 excuse me, is exactly what is happening in sadhana. That we're doing, we know what to expect and in terms of the general flow of things, but there's enough, variety there that we don't get hopefully we don't get too uh, just we don't just go through the motions and um, stop paying attention to what we're doing that's that's the idea of that these different limbs are, of of of, uh, of sadhana are there so that we could look at it from uh, from one this perspective that I'm talking about it, this novelty perspective that could be looked at. The, the reason these these different practices, um, Navalakshan Bhakti or the different 64 limbs of Bhakti are there just so that we can find different methods, whatever happens to work at the moment. If whatever, if the mind is not engaged by one, try something else. If that doesn't work, try something else. And if that doesn't work, try something else. Um, so if <clears throat> if reading doesn't work, put the book down and do kirtan. If kirtan doesn't work, uh, put the put the cartels and drum down and do something else like uh, sit and do prayer or whatever it is. In other words, in sadhana, we find a way, try to find a way to stay engaged. Now, of course, in a modern life where we have to, where we have to uh, go out into the world and make a living and whatnot, that's much harder to do. And so 
I think that kind of comes down to going back to the idea of uh, doing what we do as as a sacrifice uh, and as a sacrifice for Vishnu. So um, thinking I, I'm going to this job, um, doing you know, whatever it is, um, going to going to my job to maintain my body, but I'm maintaining my body so that I can do sadhana because I identify as a sadhaka. So, as I said earlier, what binds the soul to the gunas is our identification with them. What frees the soul from the gunas is our disidentification with them. In other words, our identification with something else. So our, our identification as a sadhaka, as a, a bhakta, as a, as a Vaishnava, our, our identification as a servant of Krishna, das anu das. Well, servants of Krishna, because Krishna is not material servant, his servants are also not of the gunas. So by identifying with that, identifying oneself as a sadhaka, a sadhaka is not a material being. So the more we can identify like that, even though we are working in the world and interacting with um, interacting with people and sense objects and whatnot, due to our identification, rather than that action being binding, that action will be liberating. It's very, it's very subtle and it takes time. Obviously it's not something that, it's kind of like uh, if you have a disease and you go to the doctor and the doctor gives you, gives you a prescription, just because you've got the prescription in hand doesn't mean that you're suddenly cured of the disease. It takes time and it takes consistency. But with time and consistency, we gradually start to see that our consciousness changes. We lose interest in things that used to consume us. And things that we never had interest in before suddenly become or gradually become one or the other. They become of interest to us and um, hold our attention with, with great power. So, and and we find that almost without effort, our consciousness is drawn internally. And the tendency of the mind to be continually going outward, that, 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 that flow is reversed. But again, this is um, on, on a micro, micro uh, what's the, uh, yeah, microscopic as opposed to macroscopic level. So on the macroscopic level, the overall <clears throat> duty or the overall task of the sadhaka is to turn one's consciousness within permanently. But we can't do that because we have duties in order, in order to maintain our body, we need to work. And that requires our consciousness to be directed outward into the world to sense objects. But in sadhana, on a macroscopic, uh, microscopic level, I should say, uh, we are a little bit every day encouraged to turn within and, and do some japa, let's say, practice, practice um, contemplative life until, um, until we get to the stage where we can actually um, actually live there and and then uh, in Nishkam Karma one will just do one's duty and then one will one will keep on doing one's duty and it doesn't really matter one one will be detached but they'll keep doing their duty because that's what you got to do whereas um at a certain point in, in bhakti, if you see that, for example, uh, a particular job or a particular life circumstance becomes, it might be favorable at a certain stage of bhakti. And then as your heart is purified, you can see that you start to have a more of a desire to practice. And then those life circumstances are no longer favorable. So then those life circumstances will be changed in order to um, be a progressive sadhaka, one would need to move in the direction of 
the internal call, the pull that is being, um, that we're recognizing from, that is the fruit of the sadhana. So by doing our practice over time, just like uh, as we become more, more eligible for contemplative life, then uh, as Bhaktivinoda mentions, we need to, uh, we need to move in the direction of, of that, not just stay put. Uh, I mean, in, if, if we're genuinely moving in the direction of contemplative life and we out of social convention remain in a situation that's not gonna be favorable. That's actually gonna work against us in the long run. But that's, that usually comes fair bit later in life. Um, and then you can see therefore the, um, the uh, recommendation of the, the ashram system, the classical ashram system, it, there is wisdom in that, that one would not attempt, generally speaking, to uh, take up the renounced order of life until the very last stage of life where one's gone through all these other things and those desires have been fulfilled by having been there and done that, and at least hopefully not interested anymore through, uh, um, through having done the practice and through having um, been purified through acting with the body such that the mind gradually becomes uh, trained. So that's all I have for today. Uh, if there are any questions, I'd be happy to entertain them. Right, doesn't look like it, so. Wish everyone a great day. Until next time.